0: So, (laughs) I think he's impressed with us. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. We're going to continue looking at some of the specific laws that God had in mind for the children of God once they reached the promised land. And we talked last week about so far they've been slaves and they've been nomads and now Moses is through God telling them what it's going to look like to be tenants of the living God. In the land that he promised you. And he wants them to understand this week what it means to be a treasure possession. Last week he taught them about true worship. This week about being a treasure possession. And my hope is that we listen with our spiritual ears to all of this and apply it to our own life. Because we are also God's treasured possession. And I thought about in the New Testament people that met Jesus... And were forever changed. And I thought about little Zacchaeus, the kind of stingy little guy that was a tax collector. It looks like he didn't have any friends. And he wanted to get a look at Jesus, so he climbed a sycamore tree. And much to his shock and amazement, when Jesus gets to him under the tree, he stops, looks into Zacchaeus' face, says his name, and invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for the day. What an incredible moment for this guy that everybody hated. And when he gets Jesus into his home and he's looking face to face into love and forgiveness, this stingy little tax collector says, I am going to give half of what I own to the poor and I'm going to pay back anyone I defrauded four times what I owe them. When he came face to face with Christ, he became a man of generosity. And I thought about Peter, the fisherman who was going about his business fishing. And one day, Jesus invites himself to borrow Peter's boat so he can teach the people that are standing on shore. And while he's there and he's teaching, he finishes and he says to Peter, You know, why don't you throw your nets right out there? And Peter is pessimistic because he's been fishing all night long and has gotten nothing. But he obeys and says, you know, we've been there. We've done that. Okay. And when he throws those nets out where Jesus wants him to throw the nets, they are overflowing. They are so full that Peter's boat begins to sink. And that's the reality... Of Jesus and who he was because of what he had just done for Peter, Peter's sins become so transparent before him and he falls down and says, get away from me for I am a sinner. And then Jesus speaks those kind words to him, don't be afraid because from now on you will be catching men. And we realize that once Peter came face to face with the living Christ, he was forever changed. And he set aside his sinfulness. The more he knew Christ, he put on holiness so he could serve the Lord. When we come to know Jesus, we are changed. And as we continue to walk with Jesus, we are being changed. And one day we will be in his presence and we will be forever changed. We are his treasured possession. Look at 2 Corinthians on your verse sheet. We are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord Who is the Spirit? And so in these chapters, Moses is going to be reminding them, you are different. You are a people people that are unique. You should stand out from all these other nations. And the reasons for them are the same for us. Their motivation for their distinct behavior would lay in their special relationship with their Yahweh God. And also, these were not privileges that they deserved, but these were gifts of love and of grace to God. So just like Jesus invited himself into the lives of Zacchaeus and Peter, God had invited himself into the lives of Abraham and Moses and the nation of Israel because it was his desire that they would bring salvation to the world. Today, it's his desire that we, the church, will bring salvation to the world as his treasure possession. Even while Israel was still slaves in Egypt, God said to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And later, when they were in the wilderness with him, before they even had the commandments, he said, You will be, for me, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a kingdom of priests. And now let's see what Moses reminds him of in chapter 14, verse 1. You are the children of the Lord your God. Do not cut yourselves or shave the front of your heads for the dead. For you're a people holy to the Lord your God. Out of all the people on the face of the earth, the Lord has chosen you to be his treasured possession. Three things we see there. They were to be unique because they were the children of the living God, a people holy to God, to God, and a treasured possession. I was talking to some moms this week and they were saying how it's such a temptation when you have a a baby and you're in a grocery store or something and someone's looking at your baby and says, she is so beautiful. And you want to say, I know. I know she is. And I kind of like it when people say that to me because I think that's great to see that someone sees within their child all that beauty that comes from God that they are a gift and in these verses we realize God is looking at his children and he wants the nations around to stop and say they're beautiful and God would say I know I called them to be beautiful they're my treasured possession." But then we read in the middle of this, this kind of strange pronouncement about shaving the front of your heads for the dead. And we're not going to read all this, but throughout these chapters, I want us to notice that God is making a distinction to his people about life and about death. And he does not want his people contaminated with things that surround the dead. And in that area... For instance, this story of don't shave the front of your heads. The pagan people would have really strange rituals about the dead. This is one of them. You would get in a room with the dead people and you would shave your head and you would cut yourself and you would abuse yourself somehow before dead people. And so that's why God throws that right in there. He doesn't want them connected to death. What does life? the children of the living God have to do with these glorified ceremonies that surrounded death. And so not only in that illustration you read about don't boil the goat in the mother's milk, you read that also in these verses, another cruel act that the pagan nations did that kept um, death sort of a superstitious, a strange... Preoccupation. In fact, um, they had a God of death, and they felt like it was this hostile supernatural force that could invade their lives. And so they had these really strange rituals. God wants to protect Israel, hold on to their holiness by keeping them from being contaminated. I read about a minister who was at a church, and he had a couple that he had heard about who lost their lives because of drug overdose. And they had a 12-year-old son named Roger. And this pastor had some boys of his own and decided God was calling him to bring this boy Roger to live with his family. So you can imagine a 12-year-old boy who'd been raised by drug addicts how he was used to working out things in his life. And so he was in this family and he would do the dumbest, meanest, selfish things and the the mom and dad would always say, no, no, Roger, we don't behave that way in this family. And that's all they would say. And when I read the story, it said, they had to say this lots and lots and lots of times. But eventually... The idea of the grace that had been freely given to him by that father began to change the behavior in that son, Roger. And he began to behave in a way that reflected he belonged in this new family. And I think for us, when we read those verses in those first few verses, that we see God is saying to us, you are in the family of God. And God would say, behave this way in my family. And first he would say, you're a holy people. This chapter begins saying, for you are holy. In verse 21, it ends by saying the same thing, for you are holy. And you read that one of the ways they were going to demonstrate their holiness was by their eating habits. In verse 3, it says, just don't eat any detestable thing. And I want to say, what in the world does that have to do with holiness? It's hard for us to put our arms around that. But what's true is, on your outline, Israel would be distinguished as holy by their obedient attitude regarding food. The foods they ate or didn't eat didn't make them holy. Their attitude about eating is what would distinguish them as holy from the nations around them. They could eat what was called clean by God. They couldn't eat what was called unclean. And God described animals as clean and unclean all the way back to the days of Noah and the ark. But it's not ever made specifically clear exactly what makes an animal clean and unclean. I don't think God was making a value statement on the animal. It was just a designation that he was given to the animals for his own purposes. Some purposes could be some animals wouldn't be as healthy to eat. Some animals uh, had interaction with other dead animals, and so God wouldn't want that. Some animals were used in pagan rituals, so God wouldn't want that. Um, he was keeping them from falling into practices of idolatry when they used animals from people around them. Uh, there may have been animals that were carved on their idolic uh, totem poles, basically, Animals' faces that God was trying to keep them away from as well. But I think along with all these outer reasons, the inner reason was he was teaching them to exercise discernment and behave like a holy people even in something as simple as what they ate because that is what would make them stand out different from the nations around them. So I thought, well, what about us? And we all know we are also called to be holy. It didn't end in the Old Testament. In fact, Peter and Paul used verses about the children of Israel being holy and applied it to the lives of new Christians back then. Let's look at those verses. 1 Peter 1. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. And Paul says, We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. To be holy in Hebrew means to be set apart. That's what we should be. We should not be conformed. And if we're involved in activities and places and families and things and we look exactly like the lost people around us, then we are not acting like God's treasure possession. I have a little guest room in my house. It's it's big enough for one little twin bed, and I make my poor parents sleep in there. My mom gets the twin bed, and my dad has to pull a mattress out from under it, and then you can't open the door or the closet. (laughs) So... I had another friend over there a couple years ago. She said, I can't believe how mean you are to your parents. <laughs> anyway, that's where they like to stay. And I just ha- I just repainted it, and I was trying to find a wallpaper that would match the paint. And I discovered something. Maybe all you decorators already know this. I threw the paint samples on top of a big piece of wallpaper, and they just popped out. I mean, they just, but one of them. Totally disappeared and blended in. And I knew that's the paint color I need to pick because it was so uh, coordinated and matching with it. But sometimes I thought that's kind of what we do. We don't know we're doing it, but we just sort of fall into the color of the things and the activities of people around us, and nobody can see us. Nobody sees that we're any different than anybody else. Nobody thinks. That is a special people. That's someone that's holy and walks with God. We should be like those paint samples that were popping out at me, noticeably different. What's the most effective way we can do that? How can we display holiness in the world? And I thought, is it because we go to church? Does that make people sit up and take notice? Well, they're they're holy. They go to church. Is it because we watch... Preachers on television, or we should just put more on there, and that will make people realize we're different, or we should write more books, or we should criticize the ways of the world. On your outline, the most effective way that you and I can reach a lost world is by choosing holiness in the simple, everyday activities of our life. I think that's what God was doing with these children of Israel when it came to eating. And that means how we treat people at work, at school, in the stores, in the community, how we handle money, long lines, salespeople, PTA, committees. That's when we'll stand out. That is when people will sit up and take notice that we're a separate people from some of the other behaviors and attitudes of those around us. I have this. There's this road in Alito. We've been out there now probably over 12 years, and it's this long, windy country road. Goes up and down curves. It's usually totally deserted. All of us that live in this one part of Alito, we've just been flying down that road for years in our cars. Happy to go as fast as we want because nobody was ever there. And all of a sudden, Alito's growing. And everybody's discovered this fun back road (laughs) that keeps you out of traffic. And lo and behold, there was a speed limit there (laughs) that none of us had noticed before. And so the police have decided, let's get all those people on that back road (laughs) in Alito. And so you can go there now. At first, the Alito people thought they'll only be out there for a little while. But no, we are all driving slower now because every day they have a line of cars pulled over to the side. You're turning around a curve and they're like, and cars are getting in the line. I got to be in the line not too long ago. Just so used to it. Uh, Everyone who's out there knows what I'm talking about. It's so annoying. We are having to go 40. We're like I can't tell you how slow it feels. Anyway, so this nice policeman stopped me, and I was talking with him. And we had a fun, nice conversation. And at the end, he kind of looked at me funny and stopped and slowed down and said, you know, under the circumstances, thank you for your kindness. And I thought, under the circumstances of my kindness, would you take back this ticket? But I didn't say it. But I thought, oh, it made me feel good that that that's how he saw me. Those are the little things that can show people holiness in the world that stands out to lost people. Now, the laws of clean and unclean have changed with Christ. Look on your verse sheet. Mark 7 says Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. These laws of clean and unclean have changed with Jesus. And he's saying it's not food. It's not things outside of us that defile us. It's what comes out of us because it comes from our heart. If evil comes out, it means we have an evil heart. In all that we do, and all that we don't do, we should be changed like Zacchaeus, like Peter, like Abraham, like Moses. We are a unique people. We show this by our holiness. We also show it by our generosity. We read about the tithes and the children of God. They were to be givers. Look at chapter 14, verse 22. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine and oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. And look at verse 28. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your own towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Every year, each grateful family would gather 10% of their livestock and their vegetables and their produce and their grain and their oil and their wine and bring it to the one place God called them to go, the temple or the tabernacle. And at the same time that they were doing this, all the Canaanite people were doing the same thing to their gods. And so wasn't God wise to take them away from it all so that they wouldn't be tempted just to sort of Slowly go in and start worshiping the wrong gods in a pagan way. God called them out. Everybody, my treasure, possession, get together. We're going to worship and celebrate and be one and be grateful and be thankful and worship the one true God. They would enjoy a feast They would share it with the Levites like they were called to do and the Levites would share it with the priests. And then every third year they were to take what they had and store it in their own towns so that the priests and the Levites and the needy people, the widows, the orphans and the poor would have provision made for them. The Levites took turns serving in the sanctuary so they were spread and scattered all over the land they needed to be provided for. And you can see in God's plan that when they brought offerings to him, they were at the same time caring about poor people that were around them. So think how important these tithes were. When they gathered together, looking at their great bounty, sort of like a Thanksgiving feast for us today, they would be thinking about God, how generous he was, They would be reminded of him, verse 23 says, they would be reminded to revere God always. And they would be reminded to use this tithe for good, to meet the needs of those who were less fortunate. And what if they chose to disobey this command about tithing? And they began not to make the trip to the one place. And they did not store tithes in their town. And they would slowly forget that everything they had belonged to God. And they would slowly forget that blessings came from him. And they would become proud and selfish. And the needy people would be left without a thing. It was God's plan on your outline, built within his commandment to tithe, was provision for the needy and strengthening of Israel's acknowledgement of their generous God. They were also to cancel debts, which was a display of generosity. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel the loan he has made to his fellow Israelite. He shall not require payment from his fellow Israelite or brother because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Every seventh day of the week you know, was set aside for Sabbath rest. Every seventh year was set aside for the Sabbath year. It was called a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. The Jews were not to cultivate the land, but to let it rest. And in Exodus, we learn that this was so that the poor of the people may eat. They could wander from fields and glean what they wanted and eat. They could go to orchards and get fruit, and they could eat. It was a time for them, and their needs to be met. It made me think about there's this one road that sometimes Ted and I walk on, and it's this back country road, and this woman has this giant pear tree, always covered in pears in the spring. And every time we walk, it's so hard for Ted not to (laughs) gather a bunch. It's his favorite fruit. And take it on home with him. And I thought, you know, if it was the seventh year, you could do that. You can just tell the lady, seven years, thanks, and go home with your pears. That must have been really a a fun thing for those people to think, isn't God good to provide? And then if you were with a generous heart, it would make you feel good to see the people in your fields and in your orchards and getting their needs met. This was also the year to cancel debts, we just read. This was another protection for the poor. Think if you were already poor, and then you had this land, and you weren't supposed to produce anything on it or develop it that year. You could not pay your debts if you were a poor person. Um, I also thought it was interesting that in some of these next passages, they keep saying the Israelites are your brother. God is reminding them, why would you treat your brother the other children of God, in an ungenerous and in an unkind way. Remember, you guys together make up my holy nation, my treasure possession. You should show mercy to all the fellow Israelites that you are in contact with. On your outline, through the Israelites' generosity, God would be protecting the poor and relieving poverty in Israel. God's system guarded against extreme wealth, and it guarded against extreme poverty. Look at verse 4 and 5. However, there should be no poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands that I'm giving you today. This verse tells us that if they followed God's system... In the canceling of debt, they would not have poor in the land. And it seems to contrast with verse 11 that you read where it says, there will always be poor in the land. So you think, okay, which is it? I really think what's happening here is Moses is saying, if you guys followed completely and perfectly and obedient my laws, you would have no poor in your land. And because of that, you wouldn't need to borrow from other nations or become dependent on them. But I also think in verse 11, Moses realistically knows not everyone's going to obey. And so you will always have poor in your land. So have an attitude of generosity to them and look out for their needs. And he warns them about this kind of thinking. What if someone came to you and said... You know, I'm really running low, I, I need some help. And you think, you calculate, hmm, two years, debts are canceled. I don't want to loan him any money, I'll never get it back. God says, don't think like that. Or what if you think, yeah I'm not going to give you money, because in two years, your debts will be canceled, so you won't need money as badly. God says, do not let yourself begin to think in that calculating selfish manner be open-handed freely lend be generous and once again God says you will be blessed I have a plan for making the land prosper and making you prosper and everyone be blessed by me and then he talks about freeing servants another example of great generosity look at verse 12 If a fellow Hebrew, a man or a woman, sells himself to you and serves you six years, in the seventh year you must let him go free. And when you release him, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. So after six years, they were to show generosity to freeing these people who were um, serving them as servants, even if it wasn't the Sabbath year. After six years, you let them go free. Um, These were people who couldn't pay off their loans. These were Jewish debtors, and they became servants. The Jews were not allowed to make slaves of each other. They would be servants because they couldn't keep the slave forever, Against their will. And so they had to give them that freedom as you would give a servant after six years. And when they walked out the door, I love this part the most. You serve someone for six years because you owed them money. And then they say, go. And they don't say, go and get out. I'm tired of you. They say, go. Thank you. God bless you. And wait, put your arms out. I'm going to put some wine in it, some oil, some grain, some meat. I'm going to fill your arms to the full. And the Bible tells us because they should be remembering, because that's what God has done for me. He has filled my arms. And when our fathers were in the wilderness, he filled their arms with manna and quail, with the law with the promises of God, we are to be generous because God was generous to us. And if the servant thought, I love this family, I love serving them, and maybe they've begun to have a family of their own, they might say, I want to serve you forever. And so then they would take an all, which I found out was like an ice pick, And put a hole in their ear, which is why they tell you they stood next to a door, because (laughs) what do you do with an ice pick coming at you? And they would be marked as a servant to that family for the rest of their life. On your outline, through the kindness of God's people, an indebted servant would be able to start a new life, just as God's kindness has taken us from slavery To live a life of grace. When you were saved, your hands were filled with love, forgiveness, joy, and peace. Your debt was canceled. You were set free at last. And when that happens, all believers are to turn around and say, I'm never going to leave. I'm always gonna serve you. I am marked with the Holy Spirit in my heart. I am yours forever grateful. What about us when it comes to giving and tithing? And as Christians who enjoy all these blessings from God and are not under the laws that Moses gave, we should be even more generous um, than some of these restrictions here of ten percent. And and Ted was telling me today, he said. Wow, the people that really began Christ chapel, they were giving above and beyond what they could do just because they knew this is what God called them to do. We are to be generous. Our debt is canceled through Christ. Our freedom was purchased by Christ. We reflect that generosity. Even though the New Testament doesn't tell us exactly how much money we should give, it does tell us some things. First of all, give in proportion to our blessings. Look at 1 Corinthians 16. Now, about the collection for God's people, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up. And it does tell us what our attitude should be. Look at the next verses. They gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service of giving to the saints. Look at the next verse. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And then look at this great verse that tells us when we give, we will receive the abundant grace of God. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He will increase your store of seed. He will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so you can be generous on every occasion. We are not made rich to be selfish with it. We are to be generous on every occasion. And I think there's three things we have to understand really deep in our heart in order to become a people that becomes a generous people. And I didn't have room on the outline for it. We already needed a magnifying glass for it. So here they are. We have to believe that everything we possess belongs to God. Instead of the attitude of, I worked hard for this, it's mine. We believe it belongs to God, and if that's true, he wants us to be generous with his things. They are his things. Secondly, that God has a heart for the poor and needy, and he provides for them through us. We are his hands. And guess what? This is another way the world will sit up and take notice, that we are different. We're standing out because we're generous people. And thirdly, that since God has lavished his grace on us, we should be more than eager to lavish grace on others through the ministry of giving. I read this quote, the calculating Christian will always be the loser. The generous Christian will enjoy God's great blessing." God planned some unique worship opportunities to keep his people set apart. They were visuals of their redemption. The first one is Passover. Um, In the wilderness, the Jews had been taught there were three pilgrimages that all Jewish men must make. Hopefully, they took their families with them. But if not, if you were 20 years old and a Jewish male, you had to do these three Jewish pilgrimages. First, Passover, then the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The religious calendar for the Jews began with Passover on the 14th day of the first month, which would be our March or our April. And then the immediate week after that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which didn't used to be connected to Passover, but in this Deuteronomy passage it is. And you all know the story of Passover, the plagues that had been in Egypt, the children of Israel enslaved in Egypt, And God says, I have one last plague so that Pharaoh will let you go. And he tells each family, which they obediently do, to take an unblemished lamb and on the 14th day of the month to slaughter it at twilight. They were to take a hyssop branch, which was from the marjoram plant, which represented purity. And then they were to put the blood in a basin, dip it in the basin, put it on the sides of their doorpost, and on the top of their doorpost. At night, they were to eat the meat of the lamb roasted over a fire with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The bitter herbs later would remind them of the bitterness of being a slave in Egypt. The unleavened bread would remind them how they were freed in haste, no time for the bread to rise, and so they left. But leaven is also always a picture of sin. And so it was like they were saying, okay, this was our life apart from God. Now we're going out to be a people, a holy nation for God. We will leave our sinful ways behind us. Let's let's look real quick, Exodus 12, at what happened. Just go back a couple chapters. 12, 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt, God said. And strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And look at verse 24. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask, what does this ceremony mean to you? You tell them, it's the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped, and the Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. So here they are. They're now standing on the edge of the promised land. And they are remembering when God delivered them from death and slavery in Egypt. Passover was Independence Day for Israel. But they had not celebrated it since their sin at Kadesh Barnea, where they refused to go in the promised land and grumbled against Moses about being brought out of Egypt. Moses is saying, It's time. It's time to start celebrating the Passover once you get into this promised land, remembering what it means. In the Feast of Weeks, they were dedicating to God the first and best of His blessings of, of uh, grain and wheat. It was seven days. I'm sorry, it took place seven weeks after Passover, which was 50 days, and in Greek, Fifty is called Pentecost, so another name for the Feast of Weeks is Pentecost, or the Day of First Fruits, or the Feast of Harvest. They rejoiced, they gathered together, they shared meal together. The Feast of Tabernacles, another feast where they celebrated the goodness of God, and they were celebrating the completion of the harvest that comes from the hand of God. This was also called the Feast of Ingathering, or the Feast of Booths. And they would bring here their grapes and their fruit and their figs and their olives. And for seven days, the Jews would gather in booths that they had made out of tree branches, which reminded them how their ancestors traveled and had no permanent home while they were in the wilderness those 40 years. And so as these people are standing on the edge of the promised land, God is saying through these festivals, I want you to remember where you came from. I want you to dedicate yourselves to me. And I want you to celebrate my faithfulness to you. And I want to say, what about us? Do we still celebrate the Passover? On your outline, certainly we remember too that we've been delivered from death to life. Through the blood of Christ. When the blood was put on the doorpost, it was a symbol of cr- the cross. And it is our Passover lamb that died on the cross for us to release us from our sins. Our perfect, unblemished, sacrificial lamb sacrificed for us. Look at First Peter 1. You know it was not with peribles, perishable things you were redeemed but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so our Passover celebration as Christians, it began the night Jesus sat at a Passover meal just about to quietly lay down his life for us. And when he took the wine and the bread and said, remember me, the wine, remember when I'm, I shed my blood, the bread. Remember when my body was broken? Our Passover is when we have communion together and we remember our sins were passed over through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And what about Pentecost? Not in your outline, certainly we dedicate ourselves to bear fruit through the power of the Holy Spirit. I think it's so awesome. 50 days... After Jesus' resurrection, it's the day of Pentecost. In an upper room are all his followers, men and women, in prayer about what they are to do next. And all of a sudden, the sound of rushing wind comes into the room. It's the arrival of the Holy Spirit. These people in the upper room would be the first to bear fruits as Christians The first to bear the fruit of the presence of God, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, but living permanently in their hearts. They got to be the first fruits. And a great harvest came because of that. And we are some of that harvest. And you have the unique opportunity to bring that harvest into other people's lives. Look at Romans 7. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. And what about the Feast of Tabernacle on your outline? Certainly we celebrate that through our Savior our joy is made complete. We are complete because of him. We have been made whole. We are part of that harvest. Once we wandered in the wilderness of our sin, once we had nothing, once we had no place of our own, once like the song we sang, we were so lost we should have died, brought in by the grace of God, we still celebrate that we get to be part of that harvest. Look at Jude 24. To him who's able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Now we are a holy people. Now we are a generous people. It's because we are a redeemed people. God's treasured possession. Let's pray. We are so grateful, God. We are so grateful that your love began in the Old Testament, continued through the New Testament, and now is alive and well in this world. May we represent it by our holiness, by our generosity, by our thanksgiving. May we always bring glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy, holy name. Amen. Thanks, Lynn. Just a few announcements before we leave. Um, We still have an opportunity to bring blankets for persecuted brothers and sisters in Sudan to church this Sunday. So if you could bring a blanket of any size.